Hello, and thanks for joining us for this month's edition of The Scope of Things, a no-nonsense look at the realities and enigmas of clinical research based on those closest to the action who aim for great, and if need be, are willing to shake things up. I'm Deborah Borfitz, Senior Science Writer for Clinical Research News. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Colleen Tenen, a board-certified internal and obesity medicine physician who serves as medical director of Javara, a company helping to pioneer the idea of clinical research as a care option. Welcome to the scope of things, Dr. Tenen. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. That's great. Uh, you know, I found it fascinating that you started your career as an investment banker with Morgan Stanley before switching to being a clinical research coordinator for a lung cancer research program at UCLA Health. How did that transition come about that started you down this path to being medical, you know, getting your medical degree and then ending up as, as medical director at Ajavara? Tell me that story. <laughs> so I actually get this question a lot because it seems like my career path might be a little disjointed. Um, but I've actually spent my whole career in various positions within the healthcare system. And I think each of these experiences have, has given me a unique insights into many different areas and components of the healthcare system. Um, it started, I've been interested in math and science for as long as I can remember. And as an undergraduate, I was actually a dual major in economics and pre-med. Hmm. Um, so given my major, I decided when I left college, I started as a healthcare investment banker. And in that role, I would advise large companies on acquisitions and fundraising. Um, and while I was very interested in that job and it gave me a very unique perspective, I knew that ultimately I wanted some more direct patient care in my future career. Um, so after completing that two-year analyst program at Morgan Stanley, I just I went over to UCLA and worked as a clinical research coordinate, coordinator for the lung cancer research program. Um, and I did that while I was applying to and interviewing for med school. Um, I then attended med school at NYU, and I stayed in New York City for my internal medicine residency at Cornell, um, which is part of the New York Presbyterian healthcare system. Mm -hmm. After residency, I began working as a primary care physician in the outpatient setting, with the exception of a brief stint in the hospital during the COVID pandemic when we ran out of inpatient physicians, and I <laughs> worked in oh, the hospital. Geez. Um, and in my practice, you know, while I was practicing, I decided that, you know, I was seeing more and more questions related to obesity and weight management. So I decided to become board certified in obesity medicine, not only so I could learn more how to treat my patients, you know, with the latest evidence and medications. Um, but I also found it to be a pretty exciting field that's just at its infancy. And I think is going to be taking off in, you know, the near future. So, you know, after years of diagnosing and treating the same conditions over and over, I decided it was time for me to consider finding a position where I could really merge my interests in operations, medicine, and research. And then this role of the medical director at Javara sort of came about and was the perfect fit for me to do all three of these together. And how long have you been in this position, by the way? Uh, just about a year. Oh, yeah. Okay. Pretty new, pretty new. Okay. But the Javara model itself sounds rather unique uh, at providing clinical research access for patients at the point of care by embedding staff and infrastructure into large healthcare organizations. So can you share a bit about how the model works and how well it works and under what circumstances? Yeah, this, you know, our model is really an integrated research organization or an IRO. And it's a relatively new model, and it was largely pioneered by our founder, Jennifer Byrne. 
Um, and the, the, through the IRO model, it's our mission to provide clinical research as a care option to patients um, through their own primary care team. So how this works logistically, you know, first, the way it begins is we form a partnership agreement contract with a healthcare system. And after we put that contract in place, the providers in that healthcare system are then eligible to become RPIs after they go through sufficient training. And then the major benefit of this IRO model is that when your own physician is the one running your trials and knowledgeable about what trials are going on in the organization and presenting them to you as a potential option for your care, patients are much more likely to be interested, want to learn more, consider joining these trials. Um, And there are many different versions and companies working with this IRO model now. What's a little unique about Javara is that when Instead of forming contracts with individual physicians to do this, we contract with sort of larger healthcare systems. And by doing this, we then, you know, not only have access to a large pool of physicians, but we also have access to uh, behind the firewall access of electronic health records of their entire patient population. So for Javara, we have, you know, over 5 million patients where we have the ability to search, you know, for patients with certain conditions or um, people who might meet certain inclusion exclusion criteria. So you um, provide a lot of support. Yeah, and it also, yeah. you know, by able being able to search the databases, we can figure out exactly, you know, where those patients are, who their providers are. If there's sort of a certain area that has like a higher prevalence of a disease, we can sort of place certain trials where we feel they might be most successful. Um, and then on the back end, you know, once we begin a trial, it allows us to sort of target these patients. Um, through the healthcare system. So you can imagine if you're, you know, you hear about a trial, you get an email about a trial that's, you know, coming from your doctor's office, you're probably more likely to click on it if it comes from, you know, a random site that you've never heard of before. Yeah, that's Um, a good point. Yeah. So it works well. And I think a lot of our physicians, um, you know, on the flip side have been very excited about the ability not only to integrate research into their daily practice and work on these new and exciting drugs, but also to be able to offer these trials to their patients. Do you provide the training of the of the investigators or is that something they do on their own? Yeah, well, there's we do a lot of training and we have a lot of, um, you know, we do a lot to support providers who haven't necessarily done sponsor research before. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we have our standard, we have a standard Javara training that all investigators go through. Um, we have a learning and development team that develops that and updates it to, you know, as we onboard physicians. Mm-hmm. And then as each trial is starting, we do sort of, they have the targeted and specific training for each trial in addition. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And I presume that Javara is agnostic about the therapeutic areas it covers, although obviously your specialty is obesity medicine. How many trials is the company matching patients to at any one time? And are are many of them related to obesity and weight control? And, And is this something you are perhaps enabling in some way, maybe even serving as a clinical investigator yourself on some of these trials? So we run trials in a variety of of indications. Um, I'm, you mentioned I'm board certified in obesity medicine, but I've also, you know, certified and was a practicing internal medicine physician prior to joining Javara. We're not, I wouldn't say we're completely therapy agnostic, but because the largest percentage of our investigators and patients are internal medicine based, many of our biggest trials are in the vaccine, infectious disease, cardiometabolic, women's health, pediatric indications that are sort of bread and butter, internal medicine, family medicine type fields. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but we're constantly expanding into new therapeutic areas. So we have many, you know, other outpatient specialties, including, you know, psychiatry, rheumatology, pretty much all of the big ones, gastroenterology, okay. pulmonology. Um, and uh, we, you know, regarding the number of trials, we, you know, at the, this moment, we have two obesity trials running across 13 different sites. Um, we have plenty of other trials in the cardiometabolic space. So, you know, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, NASH. Um, and given the lack of, you know, good treatment options for patients living with overweight and obesity in the U.S., the mm -hmm. obesity trials are a huge area of interest, not just to me because of my background, but also to our PIs, our healthcare partners, and our patients. Um, and while I haven't really served as a PI for Javara yet, that's mostly due to the fact that my current license is, is in New York and we don't have any sites in New York right now. Um, uh -huh. But I wouldn't be surprised if that's something I take on in the future. Interesting stuff. Okay. Well, obesity is obviously a huge clinical and societal issue. And I have to tell you, I literally just spoke to an epigenetic researcher at Washington State University. He says the prevalence rate is now nearly half of all adults in the U.S. I was astounded. So obviously, it shouldn't be surprising that the number of obesity-related trials should be mushrooming and patients shouldn't be hard to find. But is that in fact the case in your experience? And to what extent are people experiencing obesity, looking for or, or willing to participate in clinical trials for their condition? Yeah, I think that was a big question before we sort of got into the space, but we I've found that these obesity trials have been some of our easiest to recruit for. We have people sort of putting their names on wait lists when they hear about a trial coming to their area. Really? And I think a lot of that has been, you know, boosted by the recent press and popularity of some of the obesity drugs on the market, especially the GLP-1s. Um, I mean, who wouldn't want some free Wagovia or Ozempic when it costs so much out of pocket? Mm -hmm. um, you know, until last week, there were only five FDA approved medicines for long term weight management. Now we have six because Eli Lilly got approved last week. Huh. Um, the drugs are, you know, really not covered by insurance in many cases, and they're really expensive out of pocket. So when people are able to gain access to these medicines through a trial, they they are very interested in that. There's also, you know, a lot of other benefits they get to being in one of these obesity trials. You know, it's, we provide regular nutritional counseling and close medical follow-up. Um, you know, we're also seeing a lot of second, interesting secondary endpoints in these GLP-1 medications. You know, we've seen that semaglutide is showing benefits in CAD, CHF, CKD. So I suspect that I suspect that the number of trials for these GLP-1 drugs is, you know, only going to increase in the next few years, along with the newer, you know, next generation of drugs that are combining multiple targets. Mm, you are in a perfect location for all of this, uh, really. <laughs> um, Exciting. <laughs> yeah. So I imagine obesity-related clinical trials come with some unique patient sensitivities and in some cases may require special accommodations. Do the provider sites you work with need a lot of handholding in this arena, or do you imagine that will be the case? I mean, do you have any anecdotes you can share around this issue? Yeah, well, I'm happy you asked about this because this is one of the, you know, one of my passion is making sure that we're treating all patients with overweight and obesity with sort of respect and um, sensitivity that they deserve. Mm -hmm. The major obesity organizations have been working really hard recently to raise awareness of all the unconscious bias that patients with overweight and obesity experience in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And then I usually take all of this training that I've learned and make sure we're, we're passing this on to all of our Javara site staff who are working on obesity trials or working with 
with patients who have overweight or obesity. Um, you know, people who have overweight or obesity encounter unconscious bias and stigma in many areas of life, including the healthcare system. And what's even worse than that is that they've shown that this is linked to adverse health outcomes for this population. So there are a lot of small changes we can do to improve the experience of patients with overweight and obesity. You know, the first thing I always tell people is when it comes to language, you know, we don't have patients that are obese the same way we don't have patients that are cancerous. You know, we have patients Mm -hmm. with obesity because it's a medical condition and we should Mm -hmm. treat it as such. Mm -hmm. Similarly, we, you know, make sure that all of our exam rooms are outfitted with chairs, tables, scales, gowns, blood pressure cuffs, uh, um, anything we can think of that would need to fit a wide range of body mass index. Um, We instruct our staff to weigh patients in private areas, and we make sure that they're not announcing people's weights out loud where other people can hear them. Mm. You know, all of these might seem like minor changes, but we really feel strongly about doing everything we can to make our patients feel comfortable and respected in the clinical space. You know, and given the prevalence of overweight and obesity in America, I think we're not doing this just for our obesity trials. We should be doing this for all of our trials because, you know, we should be aware of this unconscious bias that exists in the healthcare system and, you know, doing what we can to, you know, address it. Yeah, well, that's a good point. And and I'm guessing that the uh, special accommodations and special equipment all exist. There's nothing that's sort of like missing um, in in our arsenal that we can pull from. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, like as a provider, you always want to make sure, you know, if if you have a patient and, you know, ask them to change for an EKG and you have, you give them a gown that's too small and they're left feeling uncovered, mm-hmm. you know, that's a lot of people won't take the time to sort of speak up and, you know, let you know at the time that they're feeling uncomfortable, but obviously will have a big impact on their experience in that healthcare setting. So thinking of these just a little bit proactively where patients sort of don't have to experience this while they're, mm-hmm. um, you know, in our exam room seeing providers and staff at the time. Yep. Very good point. Um, As I understand it, part of your job is to provide medical insights during the feasibility process and and perspectives on whether certain trials will be attractive to both patients and principal investigators. How is work progressing in this area? And and what are some of the key strategies uh, used in this process? I think we take this pretty seriously at Javara, just sort of, as I mentioned, as an integrated research organization, we're really thinking of clinical research as a care option. So whenever we're considering taking on a trial, we do a lot of work before we bring it to our patients. You know, the first thing we do is we spend some time mapping out the patient journey for the specific indication. You know, we do this to ensure that it's going to be a reasonable care option and have an acceptable risk benefit profile for our patients and that our physicians will feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. You know, these are physicians recommending these trials to their, you know, their own patients. And they they certainly only want to be doing this if they feel like it's in the patient's best interest. You know, after that, we then use this access we have to the electronic medical record data. And we spend some time building out the inclusion exclusion criteria And by doing that, we can really identify upfront which of these inclusion exclusion will be our biggest barriers and obstacles to enrollment. Um, And then we take it to the sites and we go to all of our potential PIs and we ask them for feedback on the specific protocol, the indication. And they also give us some local insights about their unique patient populations and what they're seeing in their everyday practices. 
So we do this, you know, internally to prepare us for trials and ensure we're setting up ourselves up for success from the beginning, you know, and we're always happy to sort of share these insights and the work that we're doing with our sponsor and CRO colleagues, um, you know, as we develop some partnerships with them. How do you learn of the trials that uh, you're getting these uh, provider sites involved in? I'm not sure I understand that piece entirely. Sorry, how do I learn of the other trials that are available for them to participate in, these provider sites to participate in? So uh, I'm not sure if I'm understanding correctly, but we have a, you know, we have a business development team. Mm -hmm. So the whole process start, you know, when we're bringing trials in, we start with the business development team and we, you know, go through all of our sites and talk about sort of what, what is our patient access? What are our providers interests? And we ask sort of the business development team as they go out in their talks with clients to focus on the trials and the indications that will be most relevant for our patients. Okay. And the clients are the sponsors then that are, they have these trials that are looking for participating investigators and patients to feed. Yeah. Sorry. I should have, okay. yeah, sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I understood the model. Okay. No. Oh no. So, um, you know, when we're going, you know, when we're trying to bring a trial into Javara, we work with either with sponsors or with CROs. So we have some partnerships with big pharma companies and they'll give us some insights on what's coming in in their pipeline and we'll tell them early on you know I don't think this is going to be a fit for us this is a trial I think we could do really well in at two sites this is a trial that I think we could run across 14 sites and take a you know enroll a large portion of the trial we also work with the CROs so this you know we have relationships with all of the big CROs so if they are awarded a study the CROs will also come to us and say is this a trial that you'd be interested in running at Jabara. Okay. So you're, you're really dealing with a lot of various stakeholders in the whole clinical trial enterprise. Yeah, um, I think, and yeah. I think with mm-hmm. the, our model, you know, the traditional, you know, sponsor contracts with the CRO who contracts with a site, it's kind of evol- evolving a little in this model. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, I understand you have some experience with virtual specialty care. So so let me ask you your views on where decentralized trial components best fit into clinical studies in this post-pandemic era we seem to be in now. Are you a proponent of any of the remote technologies that became popular during COVID? Yeah, definitely. I'm, you know, like most providers, I began providing virtual care and telehealth during the COVID pandemic. Um, and as soon as it became part of my practice, it was really obvious that there were many conditions and visits that could be done virtually. You know, it spares the patient the burden of taking off work and coming into your office, especially in the middle of the pandemic. Um, but and but as patients sort of became vaccinated and the fears of the pandemic lessened, the patient's desire for convenient medical care didn't go away. Sort of once they experienced it in the pandemic, they sort of said, why can't we continue to do it this way? Yeah. You know, I also realize that there's no reason I need to bring a patient back into my physical office to check on their response to a depression medication that I prescribed, you know, a few weeks prior. Mm-hmm. You know, and with some of the newer home technologies, things like Wi-Fi connected blood pressure cuffs, spirometers, scales, glucometers, we can also really monitor and manage more chronic medical conditions without requiring patients to take one to two hours off of work, you know, for an appointment. I think we when it comes to research, you know, we ask a lot of patients when we enroll them in clinical trials. So if there's any way we can minimize some of this burden by bringing the care to them when it's safe to do so, I think it's, I'm a big proponent of that. Do you have pull with the sponsors to, to enable this, or is this something you can simply voice as you think this would be a good idea 
for this particular trial, for this group of patients, for this reason? So I think it, de- it depends when we become involved with sponsors. You know, sometimes we become involved at the point where a protocol is already finalized, in which case we sort of operate as the protocol is written. When we do have these conversations earlier on in the protocol development, we certainly provide these feedback, this type of feedback as, you know, when it seems reasonable. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. I am going to now ask you my favorite final question that I like to ask of of people when I'm interviewing them for an article in clinical research news. And I think I will ask you the same sort of question for the benefit of our audience here. And here it is. What is it you would most like listeners of this podcast episode to walk away knowing or doing? I think that's that's a great question, a tough one. But I mean, I think in my opinion, and I always have my physician hat on, um, the one thing I always encourage everyone to do in the pharma and research industry is to just think about putting the patient first. Um, The whole reason we're in this industry is to bring new medications to patients who need them. You know, we also depend on these patients and clinical trial participants to run these trials and get the drugs approved. So when designing trials, I think we should always be keeping this in mind, thinking about ways to ease the patient burden in each trial and just really make sure we're doing the right thing for them. You know, I feel the Javara mission is to bring the right trial to the right patient at the right time in their care. So I feel fortunate to be able to do this at Javara and to be putting the patient first. Well put. You're very good on your toes. <laughs> I so appreciate you taking the time to share your medical insights today, Dr. Tennant, and happy you landed at a place where you can apply all your accumulated knowledge for the betterment of both healthcare and clinical research. Good luck with your ongoing work and enlarging the universe of places where patients have a choice between either care option. Yeah, it was great to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay. You're welcome. And we will talk again. And as always, a big thank you to everyone out there for listening in. If you're not subscribed to this podcast yet, please consider going to Apple Podcasts and doing so right now. So you don't miss your monthly dose of news and perspectives you'll be hard pressed to find anywhere else. And if you're up for it, I'd be very grateful if you'd leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts too. One final note, if you liked today's conversation, and I'm sure you did, it's only a glimpse of what we have on tap for CHI Summit for Clinical Ops Executives, aka SCOPE. Please plan to join us February 11th to the 14th in Orlando, Florida, and be sure to use discount code SOT10 for a 10% discount off any current rate. For more information, visit scopesummit.com. Bye for now.